Global's Q3 Macro Outlook, a podcast series where we discuss our global currency and macroeconomic highlights looking into the next quarter of the year. I'm Eve Danbury, a junior portfolio manager on the discretionary investment team here at Millennium Global, and I'm joined today by Pia Sashdeva, our lead economist and strategist, and Sandra Ruma, economist and strategist on the team. Afternoon, both. Thank you for joining me today. So I think going back to last quarter, it was really about the start of the turn in global inflation. But timing was everything and risks were still to the upside for certain components, particularly in the services sector, with labour markets globally remaining relatively tight. Going into this quarter, we're now getting some follow through with a focus in particular in the US, where headline inflation continues to track markedly lower. And now in Europe, we are seeing a similar pattern. At the same time, however, there's definitely been some differentiation on growth data. In the US, resilience has been clearer, particularly for the consumer, and the transmission of rate hikes into the economy has been harder to recognize. Whilst perversely in Europe, forward-looking survey data has taken a hit, impacted by a global manufacturing slowdown, and China seems to be slowing further post its initial reopening in the first half of this year. So plenty of questions to ask. Um, Perhaps we can start, Sandra, with one of the other big hurdles that the markets have looked to overcome over the past three months, and that's really been the regional banking stress or crisis, if if we can call it that, um, that occurred at the end of last quarter. Are we still seeing the levels of credit tightening that everyone, including the Fed, expected post the fallout of Silicon Valley Bank? And are we seeing any other signs of stress um, in the fallout of uh, the regional banking crisis that we had? Uh, so thanks, E, for your question. So. Um, After the regional banking crisis uh, started, it was widely expected that uh, we will have a further significant tightening in credit uh, standards that will also result into uh, immediate recession in the US. However, what we saw is that uh, we had a very quick and efficient policy intervention, both from the Fed uh, with a new facility allowing access to liquidity uh, through the bank term funding program, as well as through a private sector solution as the FDIC authorized JP Morgan to buy First Republic. So that has helped in restoring the confidence that was hit during the crisis uh, and that has led to a massive deposit outflows that have now uh, completely reversed. In the meantime, what we saw from the data that we have from the senior loan officer survey published by the Fed is that credit standards were already anyway uh, tightening because of uh, restrictive monetary policy and the tightening in credit standards only modestly intensified overall after after SVB failure, um, much lower than what was expected and probably reflecting more uh, restrictive monetary policy rather than a banking crisis induced tightening. So overall, we can say that there are no broad signs of stress in regional banks anymore and only a marginal tightening in credit conditions that mostly at this stage affects real estate loans. Thanks, Sandra, for explaining that a bit further. So just stepping away from 
the details of regional banking and taking that to a broader outlook on the US economy. In summary, for you, how has growth and the US consumer fared in the face of the tightening that's already been done by the Fed over the past year? Yeah, so what we can say so far is that growth has been very resilient and strong in the face of rate hikes. Uh, Q1 GDP growth was revised up to 2% quarter on quarter analyzed, uh, growing above potential. And the main driver of that resilience was uh, consumption, uh, household consumption, um, that also remained quite strong. And part of this resilience is explained by a strong labor market with hirings still running at above 200K, even after the softness we've seen in June. Um, and overall, we've seen uh, the transmission of monetary policy hikes uh, weaker than uh, than what we saw pre in previous cycles, uh, therefore helping resilience in private demand. And really, there are different factors that can explain that. The first is that private balance sheets, so both on the household and firm side, are quite strong. Uh, households have also accumulated a lot of excess savings during the, the pandemic that has helped in supporting consumption. And overall, consumption has now been less interest rate sensitive. Um, however, lately, and especially when we started uh, the second quarter, we've seen a deceleration of consumption. Um, consumption grew by 4.2% quarter-on-quarter analyzed in Q1. It is now tracking at 2.2% quarter-on-quarter analyzed. Um, that was mostly driven by uh, consumption in goods. Uh, we still see uh, services consumption um, remaining strong, but we've also had anecdotal evidence from the Beige book uh, that suggests that a slowdown in consumer spending throughout Q2 is uh, taking place. So overall, we expect an ongoing private demand-led slowdown of activity because we still think the lags of monetary policy are going to make their way through the economy. But in the meantime, ongoing disinflation and a relatively strong labor market should caution that slowdown and uh, avoid a recession in the US. Thanks, Sandra. Um, and then just while we're on the subject quickly, I wondered if you had any fast thoughts on the Fed just over the near term and also the trajectory for US inflation from here. Sure. Let's start with inflation. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the June data uh, was quite soft. Headline uh, dropped to 3%, core eased to 4.8%. And really at this stage, the main contributor of, of inflation is shelter. And we expect shelter disinflation to continue and to be a strong driver of overall disinflation, as suggested by different indicators that have now um, gone back to their pre-pandemic -pre levels. Uh, we're also expecting core goods inflation to um, to ease further. Um, supply chains are still normalizing. We also have surveys that shows that prices paid in the manufacturing sector are decreasing. So really, uh, the upside risk when it comes to U.S. inflation remains on the super core inflation, so services excluding shelter. Um, however, what we can say on that is that first of all, we are seeing a 
progressive rebalancing on the labor market, mostly because labor force participa participation has improved. And that has led to a moderation in wage growth without the unemployment rate uh, increasing. Uh, secondly, we are, as I said before, we're expecting a slowdown in employment and consumption growth, and that should lead to further disinflation and super core. And when it comes to the Fed, we really think that the Fed has now changed the framework it was operating with. Uh, we think that before there is a widespread uh, belief that wage growth and labor market tightness uh, were the main drivers of higher services inflation in an almost one-to-one -one relationship. Um, so in that context, the Phillips curve was, was working. But what we see really is that and the data shows that both wage and services prices have eased without the unemployment rate increasing, and therefore the Phillips curve has been much weaker than what we thought, um, in line as well with what we saw in previous cycles. Uh, and in that context, the Fed does not need to engineer a recession to bring inflation to the target, which is the perfect scenario of a soft lending. And we do think as well that the regional banking crisis has been a warning signal um, of the risks of over-tightening. So we do think overall that explains the pause in June. That is, uh, we inter interpret that pause as a, a reduction in the pace of hikes uh, to every other meeting. So we believe the Fed will hike in July. But given our working assumption of further disinflation and growth slowdown, we think the July hike will be the last one for the Fed uh, as uh, they're likely to be timed out by more moderation in the data in the months to come. Thanks, Sandra. And just before we go into more of the currency specific views, Pia, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your view on global growth in general, looking into the next quarter and how the China narrative might feed into that. Yeah, so on China, uh, I mean, growth has decelerated quite markedly from Q1 when it was reopening, uh, growth was 9% at annualized rate, so very strong. And then, yeah, has clearly softened heading into the second quarter with growth now expected to be 3% on an annualized basis um, in terms of GDP, uh, looking at the Bloomberg consensus next week. Um, that weakness has been driven by property, industrial production, exports, so fairly sort of wide in terms of those those drivers. Um, but we know that China is not the consumer of the world, right? It's the factory or supplier of the world. Um, so, you know, there, ha there has been some knock-on to, to other economies in terms of growth. So notably, Asian trade has been relatively poor. There's been some weakness in European industry, uh, although that might also be a, an inventory overhang and digesting of the previous energy shock that Europe has had as well. Um, but ultimately, the, the US has, uh, has continued to be resilient, which has been the driver of, uh, of, of global growth, as, as Sandra's been through. I think the inflation side is, is more interesting and notable for the rest of the world. Um, China now has very low inflation, looking at the core CPI measure, and notably PPI is now in um, deflationary territory. And that effectively you know, reflects that China has lack of demand right now. Um, so it's ultimately exporting 
disinflation or deflation to the rest of the world via the goods and commodities channel. Um, and that means that in developed markets doesn't they don't have to compete in the same way um, and therefore not bidding up prices in the same way um, within the goods and the energy sector in particular. So, um, so China has been important, but more on the inflation side than it has on the growth side for the rest of the world. Thanks, Pierre. Um, so as ever, translating all of those macro views into currency views is by far and large not the easiest part of our job. The second quarter of this year hasn't been the easiest environment for markets. On one side, sell-offs across the board in all fixed income markets has seen a further substantial repricing in front-end rates across all of G10. And by derivative, this usually lends itself to currency strength. But then add in the weaker element of China's deteriorating growth dynamic as you went through here, and also the lagged effects of policy tightening already out there, and it makes for differentiation, um, but also a rather choppy environment in foreign exchange where notably participation has certainly felt less in markets and volatility, specifically currency volatility, has remained historically low versus other asset classes. For us on the investment team, I can say that we have reacted accordingly to the turn in US inflation and began repositioning ourselves as a short dollar pro-risk portfolio over the last month based really on our view that the Fed will end their hiking cycle this quarter. But from a macro and economic standpoint, Pia, what's your view on the dollar as a currency into the next quarter of this year? Yeah, I think if we start with what soft landing really means for the dollar, I think broadly it's conflicting dynamics here because on on one side, on the negative side for the dollar, so dollar sort of depreciation dynamics, there's lower inflation and resilient growth, which is generally supportive of risk assets like equities and commodities. Um, and that should help the dollar broadly depreciate. But then on the positive side, you know, a soft landing, particularly from an economic point of view, does mean higher interest rates because the Fed... Uh, will likely conclude that, you know, well, we've raised rates by, let's say, 500 basis points uh, or more, and we haven't been able to, uh, the economy hasn't gone into recession, so our neutral rate must be higher empirically, and therefore, actually, maybe we're going to leave interest rates higher for longer. So this higher, higher for longer and broad resilience of the U.S. economy also means higher uh, U.S. yields, which then erodes the interest rate convergence story between the U.S. and the rest of the world, which you typically need in a dollar smile type framework for broad dollar weakening. Um, so net net, we're we're neutral the the DX the dollar from a DXY point of view, but broadly negative because we have a pro risk and carry bias. So we most like G10 cyclical FX like uh, Aussie dollar, Canadian dollar, Norwegian krona. Um, and those should be supported by wider risk assets and, and also central banks that have recently done hawkish pivots. 
Now, where does the Euro stand within that? I think Sandra will talk about this a bit more um, because she covers Europe, but the Euro tends to benefit in this type of pro-risk environment. Um, but we do think that the ECB is generally well-priced and the reversal of Europe's energy shock is now broadly well-priced as well. So um, the euro does tend to benefit, but we think that the others will benefit more, which I think from a DXY point of view leaves us slightly sort of neutral to negative. Thanks, Pia. Yeah, you mentioned the euro there, Sandra, I guess going into more detail, moving on to Europe, um, certainly the risks... I think still stand that inflation could be marginally stickier for longer, particularly in the services component of CPI. Um, but at the same time, we have seen some very weak survey data, particularly out of the European PMIs. Um, I think under the weight of the fear that the ECB will have to keep rates higher for longer. So Sandra, how are you thinking about the ECB view? Is there much more to go from them in terms of rate hikes. Um, and with that, what's your Euro view into the next quarter? Yeah, so in terms of uh, the ECB, and uh, let me go back to some numbers when it comes to inflation. So in June, headline inflation decreased to 5.5%. That's almost half of the of the of the peak that it has reached in, in October 2022. And the drivers now are not just energy inflation, but also food and core goods inflation that have uh, also reached a peak and are are now on their way, on their way down. The upside risk, as you mentioned, remain uh, really on the on the services inflation side, which is likely to remain above five percent over the summer season for technical and seasonal uh, reasons which explains why the ECB has remained quite awkish lately, despite a headline standing now, as I said, at half of its peak. Um, additionally, the risk backdrop remains quite supportive for the euro. Um, we've seen BTP bond spreads continuing to, to be well behaved despite the hiking cycle and despite the ongoing awkishness from the, from the ECB. So that's quite supportive for the euro. Um, however, in the meantime, looking ahead, uh, it's unlikely that the persistence in the services uh, in services inflation will continue. We do think that the indirect effects from lower energy um, and food prices will ultimately pass through to lower services inflation the same way they they pass through on the way up. And overall, we expect headline and core inflation to ease further in the in the months to come. Uh, so. Yes, there is more to, to go for the ECB. Uh, the July 25 basis point hike is a done deal. We see upside risks to, to September as well. Therefore, the ECB reaching a terminal rate of 375 or 4%. But as Pia already mentioned, that is already fully priced by the market. And we think the ECB is soon reaching the end of its hiking cycle. And in that context, the interest rate differential with respect to the Fed and, and the US is going to be more supportive for the for the dollar, which leaves us overall neutral uh, euro. And we do think that the, the, the currency is likely to underperform higher yield currencies in the G10 space. Thanks, Sandra. Um, so just staying in G3, looking at the yen with want of sounding like a broken clock, it does continue to stand out on a valuation basis as relatively cheap. But the level of yield 
on a relative basis versus the rest of the world is still historically low. Pierre, what are your thoughts on the yen here into the second half of this year? Yeah, I think as you say, it's it's um, been on our screens is exceptionally cheap for for quite some time, and the catalyst to unleash that value is ultimately a convergence in U.S. Japanese yields. Um, so for us, the U.S. backdrop and views on inflation is slightly uh, more positive for for the yen at the margin. Um, and underlying inflation on the Japanese side, whether we look at wages and service inflation, is moving in the right direction for the Bank of Japan to, at some stage, get out of yield curve control, and that would raise 10-year JGB yields. Um, but we don't think that that will happen until October. Um, so it does look like you know, some investors and in, in markets, particularly in the yen space, are trying to price a probability of a tightening by the BOJ in July, and we're slightly skeptical that that's going to happen. So with the Fed not cutting this year, and then little chance of the BOJ then, okay, let's say they do exit yield curve control, but raising interest rates on the short rate, so getting out of negative interest rate policy, um, we just think that that large yield deferential between the US and Japan will ultimately continue to be there. And so we would be cautious near term and have the view to be buying on dips and not necessarily chasing this move of dollar yen lower. Thanks, Pierre. So I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but the outperforming G10 currency of this year has been sterling, the British pound. It's a typical pro-risk, pro-cyclical currency. Um, and now with one of the highest inflation rates in G10, as we well know. Pia, where do you think the Bank of England go from here? And to that, how are you thinking about the currency in a global context? Yeah, so starting on the Bank of England, um, I mean, clearly there are signs of inflation persistence. We've heard Bay talking about greedflation and so on. Um, and that was met with a hawkish pivot for Bank of England in the last meeting where they had to reaccelerate the pace of, of rate hikes. Um, in some ways, that's a good thing because it reduces the chance of a, a genuinely uh, sort of negative inflation problem where the bank where the Bank of England can't get on top of it. So in some ways, the idea that they're credible and willing to get inflation down by accelerating the pace is is encouraging. Um, now, of course, that's likely to come at the expense of growth. We've seen that with curve flattening. But ultimately, it's just still keeps sterling as a high yielder in the G10FX space. And broadly, that's currency supportive. Um, and as you, as you say, or at least allude to, uh, our views that the US is on track for a soft landing is generally supportive of pro-risk currencies, including sterling. Um, so we still quite like sterling. The, the challenge to it is that the bar to surprise on the hawkish side for the Bank of England is just so high now. Um, and, you know, we, we note that the average forecaster, an economist who, you know, I think, and we do have to caveat that many economists have got this wrong, um, but still looking for a, a terminal bank rate uh, around five and a half to 5.75, which is still lower than what the market has at 6.1. Um, and I think that generally leaves the currency a bit vulnerable to a dovish surprise. Uh, and that's in the context where inflation persistence in this type of scenario 
is particularly difficult to forecast because you're having to take a view on margins and really we just don't have much data and a framework to really think about that. So in some ways, we're equally as data dependent as everyone else. And so is the Bank of England, which leaves at least monetary policy um, susceptible to quite big U-turns. And so I think that again, in the context of market positioning as well, where long sterling for us is flashing up as being very crowded, it leaves sterling a bit vulnerable. And so the macro fundamentals look look quite good from a pure yield perspective, um, but there is a situation where sterling could be quite vulnerable. So we've stayed neutral on it over the quarter. Um, and then moving on to another major currency, the Swiss franc, um, we've recently had the SMB meeting for this quarter, where actually they only hiked by 25 basis points against some expectation that they may do more. Um, but again, suggested in their statement that they were nearly done with tightening, similar to their rhetoric in the last meeting. But at the same time, um, intervention is clearly an active ongoing policy for them. Pia, what are your views on the SMB and the Swiss franc from here? Yeah, so on the SMB, I think the, the surprise from the SMB is that they weren't actually done. Um, and so, you know, their, their forecasts for inflation were revised up, even though they did a 25 basis point hike and not a 50 basis point hike. And they've actually been relatively hawkish in comments post the meeting um, when we've listened to Jordan and uh, Mickler as well. Uh, particularly when we compare those comments to where inflation is actually tracking, which is actually very close to their targets. Um, but meanwhile, they're still saying that you know, underlying price price pressures are really persistent. Um, so, you know, insofar as they think that, and that's what we're hearing, they're likely to be intervening in the in the currency and uh, favouring a stronger stronger Swiss franc. Now. Inflation dynamics, um, or at least inflation cooling down in the broader European space, does suggest that that stance at some stage should come to an end and they should allow the currency to have a bit more two-way volatility. Uh, When we look at some macro factors, like particularly terms of trade uh, and the reversal of natural gas prices, we think Euro-Swiss should be trading a lot higher or so the Swiss to weaken particularly in this type of risk environment where um, the Swiss franc is a low yielder in, in G10. But for that to happen, we need the SMB to, to change that stance. So um, we think they'll do another 25 basis points hike in the, in the next meeting. I think part of that is likely to come from them trying to match the ECB. Uh, and then after that, they should uh, allow a bit more two-way uh, volatility in the Swiss franc. Thanks, Pierre. Um, So moving on from the majors to more of perhaps the risk currencies and the commodity currencies, the classic of those um, and perhaps the one that's been in the past, the most traditionally correlated to equities has been the Aussie dollar. Um, So Sandra, what are your thoughts on Australia, its economy um, and the RBA and, and hence the Aussie dollar from here into the next quarter? Yeah, so on the Aussie dollar, um, well, our US soft lending scenario is overall risk supportive and is likely to benefit the currency. 
uh, we're also expecting a fiscal package to be announced in China, uh, which should also support uh, the currency in the medium term. Um, when it comes to the domestic domestic Australian landscape, uh, we've seen so far that inflationary pressures, uh, especially in core inflation, remain quite strong. The labour market is also uh, very tight. We've seen some wage agreements as well that have put upward uh, pressures on on inflation, or at least that's the fear from the RBA. And overall, we that has kept the RBA quite quite awkish uh, in the beginning of this year, and and we think that the RBA is going to hike again in August, um, as the quarter two inflation data should uh, should uh, show some easing compared to the first quarter, but still remain above uh, the RBA's forecast. So we are overall positive um, Aussie dollar uh, versus the US dollar. Okay, interesting. So. I guess some potential upside risks for the RBA from here. On to another closely linked commodity currency, the Canadian dollar. Um, Sandra, is there risk that the Bank of Canada could hike again, do you think? And how are you thinking about the Canadian dollar from here overall, particularly in the context of global growth and the potential uplift to oil prices into the second half of this year? Yeah. So in July, the BOC has uh, hiked again after surprising in in June and uh, resuming its hiking cycle. Uh, The statement uh, from the BOC in July was actually quite awkish. So we still see the BOC hiking again in in September. And that's really because of different domestic factors. The first is that inflation and especially the momentum in core inflation remains quite strong. It has been stuck between 3.5 and 4% since September and has moved basically sideways in the last couple of prints. Uh, they've also had a very um, strong growth in Q1, and it seems like the momentum into Q2 is also stronger, or at least stronger than, than their own forecast. Um, and they have updated their projection for both inflation and, and, and growth. They have now inflation uh, being uh, stuck at around 3% this year and only going back to the 2% target by mid-2025, which is two to three quarters later than what was expected in, in, the, in the April projection exercise. Um, so as I said, uh, the BOC to, to hike again in September with upside risks. And uh, when it comes to the global environment, as for the Aussie dollar, the favorable global, global risk environment should also be supportive. and we don't see oil prices uh, dipping further as supply is reduced. So uh, that should be also uh, supportive for the currency. So we are overall also uh, positive Canadian dollar versus US dollar. Thanks, Sandra. Um, So tying in some of those thoughts on commodity currencies, Pia, China, We've mentioned it quite a lot on this podcast already, but it does seem to be one of, if not the most pivotal story for markets into the next quarter. And the hopes of a stimulus package announcement post the next Politburo meeting are certainly brewing. What are your thoughts on China's economy here? And how do you think the currency will fare in the medium term? Yeah, I think on the China side, you know, long term, it's become 
clear that issues in the property sector are structural and they require a policy response, particularly to raise confidence, but also to help develop a financing as well. Um, on the monetary policy side, I mean, they, ha- they have started easing, okay, or we, the rate cuts are very, very mild. Um, I think the authorities will be worried about broad capital outflows, but it does put the China rate cycle at odds with developed markets. Um, and though we expect that weak growth and monetary easing to continue, it, it, it does look like it's you know, clearly somewhat priced into asset markets. The renminbi itself has moved, moved quite a long way. Um, currency weakness, in theory, is the preference at this stage of the cycle for for China. Um, but we've now seen the PBOC leaning against this in the fixings. Um, and again, it's likely to come from them fearing instability and capital outflows like back in 2015, which is a scenario that they that they don't want again. Um, and as you say, we, we do expect a support package to be announced around the Politburo meeting. What that exact is that is exactly going to look like, we we don't really know. Um, but what we do think is that it would likely be targeted. Um, we don't expect a, a massive U-turn in terms of like po- uh, leverage policies that seem to be um, a structural view from uh, and policy priorities of of China that are fairly long term. So we don't expect uh, a huge U-turn in 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 the the idea that, you know, houses are for living and not speculation and so on and so on. Um, and I, I'd expect that the market tries to play that theme maybe before the meeting actually happens. So we'll be looking quite closely at broad China risk assets like equities and industrial metals as well. Um, and that combined with potentially a turning in the inventory cycle should help support growth expectations and maybe help portfolio inflows. So at the moment, the US dynamics been important for us and you know, clearly the backdrop for Brunimbi changes uh, in an environment of broader dollar depreciation. Um, but we're, we're sort of waiting tight and expecting some sort of, of news in the next few weeks on the, the China side. Thanks, Pia. Um, so just finally, Sandra, touching on the exciting world that is emerging markets, um, Brazil, it has the highest real yield globally with rates of 13.75%, but the door is now open for rate cuts. Um, Just quickly, what are your thoughts on the BCB from here? And how are you thinking about the Brazilian real as a whole? Sure. Um, On the BCB, really, their main concern over the last few months was um, that inflation remained quite high, although it was on the way down. And the whole fiscal uncertainty that led to inflation expectation, the anchoring, has uh, kept the BCB hawkish despite domestic developments that suggest that the BCB could be could be cutting. Well, now the, the landscape ha- has changed. The fiscal uncertainty has completely disappeared uh, with the adoption of the new fiscal framework. Uh, we've also had good news at the end of June when authorities have agreed to leave uh, the interest rate target and changed instead of uh, increasing it. And uh, consequently, we've seen 
a sharp uh, decrease in inflation expectations towards uh, towards their um, long-term target. So that's uh, that sets up the BCB to start cutting its interest rate um, at the end of the third quarter, together with the fact that we've seen uh, disinflation really um, accelerating in the last few prints, also in the core side. Um, so as you said, uh, real interest rates are uh, anyway very high. The BCB will start cutting from a nominal interest rate of 13.75%. And we do think that that cutting cycle will be will be slow to begin with. Um, so although carry will be eroded, uh, we still think that real interest rates uh, should still be very attractive in an environment where uh, where global risks are also um, outperforming and we do think that the BRL is is going to um, to to outperform so we have a positive view uh, on the BRL despite the BCB uh, starting to cut at the end of the of the third quarter thanks Sandra well thank you both for today as always it is great to take a step back and think about the macro where we've come from and ultimately what has changed in terms of the reaction function for central banks now that we are nearing the end of what has been a pretty aggressive global tightening cycle as we shift from a world of rates differentiation being a clear driver of fx to one of cycles ending, I think from here, it will be key to monitor that pass through into various economies and whether indeed growth expectation, equity dynamics and valuation, uh, and finally commodity price action can turn into somewhat of the bigger drivers for FX into the next quarter. So certainly an interesting time with hopefully plenty of opportunity if you do have any questions about anything that we've touched on today, then please feel free to reach out to us or the marketing team. Thank you for tuning in to this Q3 Macro Outlook podcast with Millennium Global, and we will see you next quarter with more macro and currency views. Bye.